it because the end is coming. Just wait for it. Maybe you'll be ready. But if you think history is flowing in a different direction, then your response would be quite different. You might build a cathedral. You might work to reform our institutions, like the church and the state. The way that you think history is going will inevitably shape how you live your life every day. How does the world answer where history is going? Well, there are people who are optimistic. They think that they can build a utopia here on earth. And they'll do it through education or through legislation. There are various responses to where the flow of history is going. A a glance at Scripture seems to suggest that the goal of history is the consummation of the kingdom of God. That means that it's all coming to a point of completion where we are united to God in paradise, no longer encumbered by these sinful bodies, but we have been glorified in our new resurrected bodies. And Christ and His rule and reign assume more and more power until at last Christ hands the kingdom over to His Father, having accomplished His purpose. The last enemy to be defeated is death, which is banished forever. And when that mission is accomplished, all the world will come before the throne of God for judgment, before their King. After the judgment, those who did not bow the knee to God in Christ as king will be sent to hell, the realm of all those who rejected the kingship of Christ. Those who bowed to the knee to Christ would rule and reign with him as kings in the new heaven and the new earth, this time obediently, like Adam should have. As much as can be discerned, the flow of history seems to be optimistic. Jesus wins. We know the end. He defeated Satan on the cross and binding him, he curtailed his power, allowing him only to fight a losing battle. If we know the outcome of the end, and we do, then why is it that the pessimistic outlook of the present seems to dominate our view of history? The way I hear Christians speak about the present cultural realities would seem as if Christ will return to a weak and dying battered church, barely hanging on until almost nothing remains. And then, just before the last spark is extinguished, Jesus comes back and rescues that one or two people that are left. Is that how we should view history? Is that how we should think about the kingdom of God? Jesus came in the middle of history, or at least He came at the end of one age and the beginning of of another, He inaugurated or began the new covenant era. And the old covenant people of God, Israel, expected his coming. And they had their own preconceived ideas of what he would be like, what kind of king he would be, what his kingdom would look like. But Jesus was subverting all of their preconceived ideas of what the kingdom of God was. He was teaching them the true nature of the kingdom of God. They expected his kingdom to come with regal power and to overthrow all the wicked rulers of the world, especially Rome, and deliver the kingdom to them. And they would rule and reign with this Messiah. Thankfully, Jesus was teaching them the true nature of the kingdom of God and and how it would be received. We saw that in the parable of the sower. 
who it would contain. We'll see that next week in the parable of the wheat and the tares. And what is its nature? What is the nature of the kingdom of God? Remember, he teaches this in parables. And a parable, as one scholar says, is comparisons with sceneries and stories drawn from everyday life in order to conceal or reveal spiritual truths relating to the kingdom of heaven. Today we're going to look at the parable of the mustard seed and leaven to see what the nature of the kingdom of God is. And as we do, hopefully we will have our perceptions of the flow of history shaped by the Bible and especially by this parable. Because the reach and reign of the kingdom of God is unstoppable. We must live like Christ will be victorious in our hearts and in the world. Turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to begin together in verse 31. It is also printed in your bulletin. He, that is Jesus, put another parable before them, saying the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you have gathered us together in your presence. And we ask that you would open up your word so that we may behold wonders therein. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that understand. For we pray this in the strong name of Jesus and amen. The kingdom of heaven is like Jesus uses, as he did in the parable of the sower, a similitude. He wants to compare two things. You take something that you know a lot of and you compare it to the thing that you do not know a lot of. We know, or at least first century in Palestine, knew a lot about farming. They are an agricultural subsistence society. They know what mustard seeds are. They know how small they are. They know how they grow. Jesus wants to show what the nature of the kingdom of God is, so he takes an everyday, ordinary occurrence, like a mustard seed, and compares it to something that we don't know anything about, the kingdom of God. I've planted gardens before, but I've never planted mustard. But it was common enough. It was used as a spice, and it was also used for medicinal purposes. Its seeds were not the absolute smallest, but relatively, they were small, one to two millimeters. And despite that, they develop into quite a large plant. Jesus describes them as a tree, and we will talk about why he does that in a moment. But it's really a shrub. They grow to be about 6 feet tall, 6 to 20 feet. They can be large, depending on the climate. Jesus is forming a comparison between mustard seeds and the kingdom of God. Both begin very small, insignificant. Both expand to become large, the largest in the garden, as Jesus describes them, even supporting birds nesting in them. Now, as I will caution over and over again throughout the summer, we don't want to press the analogies that Jesus uses in the parables too far. Um, We could look for meaning in the birds and 
the, um, as we'll see, the woman who took the flower and hid it. Uh, but we want to look and see what is the principle, what is Jesus teaching us here? What Jesus is comparing is the relative insignificance of the start of the mustard seed compared to with how it ends as a very large plant in the garden with imposing size. He's comparing the insignificance of a start with the growth that becomes larger. Now remember the context. Jesus is giving this parable, the first century Palatine, which was a hotbed of messianic expectations. They all have their own idea who the Messiah would be, what he would do, what he would accomplish. But remember, the Messiah is the Lord's anointed, which is most often associated with David. He becomes the greatest type because he is the patriarch, the one that God made a covenant with in 2 Samuel 7, saying that his son would sit on, the, on his throne forever. Well, what kind of king was David and what characterized his rule and reign? Remember the song that they sang of David when he came back from battle. Saul has struck down his thousand and David his ten thousand. First Samuel 18, 7. His reign was characterized by expansion, beating back the enemies and reclaiming and claiming the land that God had promised to them. David and his son Solomon ruled Israel during a period of time known as the Golden Age in Israel. They experienced great prosperity and blessing as their faithfulness was met with God's faithfulness. They were faithful, and so God prospered the nation. And as Israel's history unfolds, prophets would encourage Israel to repent and turn back to the Lord, and then God would pour out His blessing upon them. There was a connection between their faithfulness and their dwelling in the land and their land prospering. The coming kingdom of God was described in very rich, lavish language with Jerusalem depicted at its center. One example is from Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. It says, Isaiah says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. He's talking about the promised Messiah would come from the line of David. Jesse is David's father. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ear hears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. These are all describing what the Messiah would be like. And what his rule would be characterized by. But then it goes on and says this in verse 6. The wolf shall shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth 
shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. You see, the picture of the coming Messiah is characterized by a rule of peace. We don't usually let our children lead lions around. It's not a good practice to put their playpen over the cobra's hole. Right? We recognize these things are dangerous. But when the Messiah comes, he will enter into a, a period where, of peace. And the whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord. And Jesus arrives, born in the family of David, of the tribe of Judah. He's that, that branch that comes from the stump of Jesse. He's the promised Messiah. And the first thing he does is begin to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is, ha- is at hand. It's close by. It's come near to you. The long-awaited kingdom of God had come, and Jesus goes throughout Israel proclaiming that good news. But if the kingdom had come and Jesus was the king, it must be a different kind of kingdom and a different kind of king than we expected. For it seemed to Israel that Jesus was insignificant. He didn't come with pomp and show, great power, legions of armies. He came to Galilee. Nobody goes to Galilee. It's like going to Scranton. (laughs) He goes to the backwaters, right? To bring the gospel, to proclaim the good news. He starts small. It's like a mustard seed. But when it's grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. Why does Jesus compare it to a tree? Everyone knows that a mustard seed grows into a shrub, not a tree. Why does he call them trees? We, at our old house in Washington, had a bay laurel. It was a shrub, but it had grown probably 25 feet. And it was the biggest tree we had in our backyard. So, of course, my sons saw every opportunity to make forts in it. I remember coming home one day and having 10 or 15 two-by-fours up in this little tiny shrub. Most of the branches were smaller than the two-by-fours. But that was the only available place for them to build a fort. And boys being boys, that's what they did. A mustard shrub is not the kind of tree you will build a fort in, right? It might provide a wind block for a garden. It might be the biggest shrub in the garden. But it's not a tree. It's not like a cedar. It's not mighty and powerful. Why does Jesus identify a mustard shrub with a tree? Everybody in his audience would have thought, that's not a tree, it's a shrub. But Israel is described as a tree. Israel is described as a cedar that God planted in the land and grew and grew so that its branches became a blessing to the nations. You see this in Ezekiel. Jesus is identifying that the kingdom of God is coming in insignificance, like a mustard seed, small, and it will grow, but the growth and the direction is subversive. It's not 
what we expect. It's not what our senses are used to. We think tree, we think cedar, we think grandeur and pomp and glory. But a mustard shrub is none of those things. It defies our senses. We look and we see a king on the cross, bloody, dying. We want royal robes and glory, but we see only suffering and death. The kingdom had come, but not as expected. That's the first thing that this parable teaches. It comes to us in unexpected ways. It's insignificant and small. It's glorious in its own way, but not in the way that we measure, not in the way that our senses measure. But secondly, we are reminded not to despise the day of small beginnings. There is this episode in Israel's history when restored to the land after the exile. They have just finished building the second temple. And there is a great shout of joy and a shout of sorrow that goes up together at the same time. People are wailing because they remembered what Solomon's temple in all of its grandeur and glory looked like. And so they are sad. They're crying in sorrow because the new temple is nothing compared to that glory. And yet there are others who have not seen the other temple and they are shouting for joy. And Zechariah says he warned them not to despise the day of small things. For out of that small remnant that God sowed back into the land would come the kingdom of God, would come the very Messiah, Jesus, who would save His people from their sins. Out of that tiny mustard seed would come the tree which would give shelter to the nations. You see, unbelief looks on the small beginning and only sees a mustard seed. But faith looks and sees the potential that the tree, that seed, will one day be. Unbelief looks and sees a kingdom whose beginning is insignificant and despises it for its deceptively subversive nature. But faith looks and sees a kingdom that is victorious over all. Unbelief sees a man who said he was king on a cross, bloody and dying. No place for a true king. But faith sees a lamb slain for the sins of the world. Faith looks and sees a lamb slain and realizes it's a conquering lion, the lion of Judah, in whose death the curse of death and the power of death, namely sin, is defeated. Unbelief sees the Christian's call to follow Christ as a fool's errand, preferring honor and pleasure in this life. But faith sees that paradoxically, to gain your life, you have to first lose it. Faith refuses to rely on our senses, but rests and trusts in God alone. That despite the small beginning, the kingdom of God is triumphing over the world. Today is Pentecost. Jesus chose 12 ordinary men as the foundation for the church. And when they met at Pentecost, it was 120. Still small and insignificant. Yet that small mustard seed band of disciples turned the world upside down. 
So that we are sitting here on the other side of the world, recipients of that same message. The mustard seed grows into a great tree if you have eyes to see it. Because the reach and reign of the kingdom of God is unstoppable, we must live like Christ is victorious in our hearts and in the world. Jesus continues to press into the nature of the kingdom with a further analogy. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Some have tried to read too much into the analogy of leaven, seeing that in much of Scripture, leaven represents sin or wickedness. We're to cast out the leaven. We're not to have leaven. Now, admittedly, there are sacrifices that did include leaven. The wave offering and the thanksgiving offering had leaven. But, as in Jesus' statement, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, Matthew 16, 6, or Paul's exhortation to cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. But as you look closer, the comparison is not on the leaven itself, but the process of leavening, whereby something is transformed thoroughly by the input of something that is foreign. We are to beware of the teaching of the Pharisees and the effects that it will have on us, leavening us with their teaching, the teaching or, or, or the malice and envy that Paul warns about in 1 Corinthians 5. These speak exactly to what Jesus' analogy is getting at, the pervasive nature of the kingdom of God. Leaven is not like a jar of yeast you might have in your fridge. Leaven is leftover dough from the previous batch that is folded in to the new dough. Then with time and heat and the proper moisture, the leaven works to permeate the whole new batch so that all of the dough is now leavened. And Jesus' analogy that he uses is not like a woman making one loaf of bread for her family. These are bakery-level qualities. Three measures of flour is a bushel of flour. That is the equivalent of 128 cups or 16 five-pound bags. In addition to the nearly 42 cups of water, that's over 100 pounds. This is enough to feed 100 people, possibly the whole little village. Now, commentators and preachers have looked for meaning in the size or in the woman who folded it in or hid it. And I don't want to press the analogy too far. Jesus' emphasis seems to be on the effects of the leaven on the dough. The pervasive and transforming tendencies of leaven. That is what the kingdom of God is like. Leaven is pervasive and transforming. There are these two aspects of the effects of leaven that are determinative of what the kingdom of God is like. First, that it transforms from the inside out. The leaven is taken and hid in the dough. In this case, the woman takes three to four pounds of already leavened dough and kneads it into the flour and water mixture. And once it's worked in, it begins to transform the entire batch from the inside out. 
cultural transformation has been at the forefront of many conflicts lately in the church. What is the church's relationship to the broader culture? Which relates then to the question of what is the mission of the church? If the church is responsible for transforming culture, that would inevitably affect and direct her mission, how she conducts herself. Well, I can't do justice to the complexity of this issue. This parable does open up avenues for us to understand and answer these questions. I've said before, the kingdom of God is not a geographical location like the kingdom of Great Britain. We can't point to it on a map. It's not like all those who are in the kingdom of God are amassed in one place. The kingdom of God may not even be the best word to translate what Jesus is speaking of. It may be better to speak of the kingship of God or the dominion of God. It really speaks to his, character, his rule and reign. The kingdom of God Defining it this way helps guard us against thinking that our cultural endeavors are expanding the kingdom of God or building or erecting. These are not the language that we find in Scripture. The kingdom of God is expanded when people submit to Jesus as their Lord, as their King. When hearts are transformed by the gospel so that One day a person is dead in sin, and the next, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by grace, through faith, their lives are transformed, and they submit to Christ. That's the kingdom of God expanding. We can proclaim it, we can enter it, we can reject it, we can inherit it, we can possess the kingdom, but the growth and the building language are all reserved for God. God builds his kingdom. God expands his rule and reign. And we proclaim the good news of the gospel. And we call people to repent and believe. The church is the sphere or the place where the kingdom of God is breaking into this present world. The church is an outpost, a colony of heaven. We reside as members of the church with our primary citizenship in the kingdom of God. We straddle two worlds. The church's mission is simply the Great Commission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey Christ. Baptism is the certificate of your citizenship in the kingdom of God. And obedience to Christ is the breaking in of the rule and reign of the kingdom of God here and now. The church is primarily to make disciples. And disciples, in turn, go out and living as citizens of that heavenly city, transform the city of man by living obediently to Christ. So in a way, the church does transform the culture. We can't help but have a leavening effect on the world around us. Because hearts that are transformed by the gospel don't live like the world around us. Our very lives are changed and different. And so, we do transform the culture. Not as an institution by 
redeeming the various spheres, but by word and sacrament, making a new people who inhabit the world as ambassadors of a different culture. And that, as we have seen throughout history, does have a leavening effect. We are beneficiaries of our forefathers who were faithful, and we have inherited all of that faithfulness. And we're beginning to see it wash away. And this leads to the second aspect of leaven. It is pervasive. It's transforming and it's pervasive. When the dough has been leavened, there's no aspect that remains unleavened. Now here I am on safer ground, speaking of the individual Christian believer in the pervasiveness of the rule and reign of God expanding in his or her life. This then will be an illustration of how the kingdom of God expands in the world. We look at our own lives and we see the pattern for how the kingdom of God is pervasive. Individual hearts that are conquered by the gospel are their lifelong leavened by the gospel. That same gospel until finally at the resurrection the believer receives new glorified bodies no longer inhabited by sin. There's no aspect of you that is dominated by sin. You are thoroughly leavened. From that perspective, in the end, what remains unleavened? Nothing. For all the believers, life is now lived in the presence of God, no longer having divided loyalties. We call this the consummation of the kingdom. This is when it's complete. When all of our sanctification is done, when we have either died or or the Lord has changed us and we are gathered together with Him. In individuals, the progress of sanctification is incomplete in this life. For some measure of unleavened dough remains with us. As much as we battle against the flesh and the world and the devil until we die, that battle continues to go. And the same can be said of the world. The progress is hopefully upward for the individual. We would like to think that our lives are progressively growing in holiness. That from the moment we give our lives to Christ, we are steadily growing in holiness. Putting off the old man and putting on Christ so that our end hopefully is better than our beginning. Many of us know people who have died Christians in their old age who were worse off than they began. And we have reason to hope that God is able to make them stand. Our sanctification in this life is not perfect. And it is carried out differently in each of us. But we have every reason to believe that the progress would be upward. And the same goes for the church and the progress of the kingdom of God spreading throughout the world. We have every reason to believe that God will be victorious so that there will not be at the end of the age when Christ comes again a battered and dying church, but a victorious church. One ready to receive Him. Because... As the gospel goes forth, more and more hearts are transformed and submitted to Christ as king. As king, The kingdom of God will be pervasive. We can't help but change the culture around us. 
by the way that we vote, by the way that we live just as neighbors to love one another. Our lives are different. And if they're not, then we have no witness to the world. And we are traitors to Christ. Unbelief looks at the little bit of leaven hidden in the dough and wants results immediately. But faith is patiently waiting for the transforming to have its pervasive effect. Faith also is patient to endure that transforming work, which is hard. It's painful. It's a painful process to be stripped of your old identity in man and given that new identity in Christ. So we learn to put off sin is challenging and painful. It's like leaven transforming the dough. Therefore, faith is on guard because the world around us offers its own leaven. It wants to leaven you. It wants to conform you to its own image, with its own God, with its own king. And we must resist that. So faith is on guard against impatience that would have the kingdom consummated now. This is that fancy theological word, over-realized eschatology. just means we want heaven now on earth. We want our utopia. Faith says we have to wait and be patient because the work of leavening takes time. But faith is also on guard against pessimism, which would seem to have only part of the dough leavened. Faith remembers that it is God who is at work building His kingdom and causing its growth. It remembers that God includes us in that work merely as proclaimers of what He is doing. Publishing the good news far and wide, calling the nations to repent and believe. The kingdom of God is like leaven. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Father, thank you that that you will be victorious. We know the end. Teach us by faith to not look through our senses at the kingdom's growth. And teach us to be patient as you do the perfect work of leavening each of us. May we be conformed to Christ more and more resembling Him, and less and less resembling the world. For we pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.